Hello, sports fans, and welcome to Let Me Speak, the show that shares sports' biggest headlines explained, uninterrupted, and maybe a little audacious. I'm Joe Braverman, and today's topics we'll be discussing are Who were the biggest surprises and snubs from this year's NBA All-Star rosters? Plus, buying and selling recent NBA runs before the first half closes. And, what's next for Naomi Osaka and Serena Williams? It's episode 15 of Let Me Speak, and it starts right now. Coming to you on Thursday, February 25th, the newest edition of Let Me Speak. Can't believe we're 15 episodes into this thing, man. It is absolutely insane. It's all of you listening. Thank you for your support. Look forward to the next 15, and then 30, and then more and more. Now, before we get underway into talking about some sports, I want to send my thoughts and prayers to, obviously, the big sports headline involving Tiger Woods involved in a car accident Uh, that required leg surgery and a broken ankle. So I'm sending my thoughts and prayers. You never want to see anyone go through that, no matter who it is. So I'm wishing nothing but the best for Tiger and hope we get to see him on the course again. Uh, But overall, just a speedy recovery. Now, aside from Tiger, the other big news is coming out in the NBA regarding the All-Star Game in the game that I, once again, will say am not a fan of having take place. There were rosters that were announced over the past week, and so we will dive in to the starters, reserves, and maybe who should have been on this list. So, obviously, we start in the Eastern Conference. Their starting lineup consists of Kyrie Irving, Bradley Beal, Kevin Durant, who's the captain, the Greek freak, Giannis Antetokounmpo, and Joel Embiid. And on the other side for the West is Stephen Curry, Luka Doncic, Kawhi Leonard, the King, LeBron James, and the Joker, Nikola Jokic. Now, the first obvious one is why the heck is Damian Lillard not in the starting lineup? This is why you can't trust fans with literally anything, and I mean it, anything, regarding all-star voting because you know that Dallas is going to go absolutely nuts for their guy Luka Doncic and obviously Damian Lillard he's out in the west in Portland Oregon so not many people are going to be able to see him so I was very shocked and surprised and I think next year you have to take the the fans control out of it just a little bit more right now it's like 50 percent for them and then 25 percent for players, 25% for coaches. I think you got to go 50 between the coaches and players. But then you got to like scale it back. Like the media maybe get 30% and the fans get like 20%. Because we've seen over the years that they don't do the best job with picking all-star starters. I mean, Zaza Pachulia was getting votes. Hence, they had to go to this format right here. So... As passionate as the fans are, they shouldn't have control of this kind of stuff. So obviously Damian Lillard was the biggest surprise. The second biggest surprise I saw was the fact that Kyrie Irving got the start in the backcourt over James Harden. I totally thought that Harden with the numbers he's putting up, it's basically a near triple-double. It's about 24 points. He's leading the league in assists. You would think he'd get that start over his teammate from Brooklyn, Kyrie Irving. So that was a little surprising to me to see Kyrie in that starting lineup. But I think regardless, those two were going to be all-stars nonetheless. I probably would have had Harden in the starting lineup. And I know I made a, some all-star predictions a couple of weeks ago, and I was way off on a couple of them. I also think Jalen Brown maybe should have gotten a couple more votes. I think it's just because this is his first big season where he's finally getting into that all-star contention. He's getting votes. He finished fourth in the backcourt for the Eastern Conference, but I think maybe he should have gotten the start over Bradley Beal because Bradley Beal, I get it, he's the leading scorer, but he's on a Wizards team that's second to last in the Eastern Conference. You want to reward winning, and obviously the Celtics aren't doing fantastic right now. 
they're a sub-500 team, but you still, that's better than where Washington is at, and you would think you might want to give Brown that nod, but in fan voting, when you're compare, when you're competing with Irving and Harden and Beal, that's very hard to predict. Now, luckily, all those names got onto the reserve list that just came out this past Tuesday, and I'll read off the full list of reserves that came out. For the Eastern Conference, as I mentioned, Jalen Brown, James Harden, they both made the reserves list. Jalen Brown gets the nod in his first All-Star game. James Harden will go to his ninth. Some feel-good players as too. Zach Levine from Chicago, who's averaging a career high, he gets to go to his first All-Star game. Julius Randle, having a career year, gets to go to his first, representing the Knicks. Ben Simmons from the 76ers. I was a little surprised to see him get nominated to his third game. But again, the 76ers, they're the top team right now in the Eastern Conference. So you got to have two 76ers there. And then you have Jason Tatum making his second All-Star appearance for the Celtics. And then this was the most shocking to me in the Eastern Conference. Nikola Vucevic from the Orlando Magic in his second All-Star game. Now, this is kind of similar to most teams in the conference right now, but they're 13 and 19. 13 and 19. And I get he's putting up career numbers with 24 and almost 12 rebounds per game. But I mean, you could say the same thing about players on the Hawks, like Trey Young, who might be a snub, or Bam Adebayo from the Heat. You know, that could be a snub right there, too. So the biggest snubs, I would say, from the Eastern Conference. To me, at least, number one would be Demond Sabonis. I mean, let's talk about the Indiana Pacers. They're in the fourth and fifth seed in the Eastern Conference, and they don't have one all-star. Not one. Sabonis is averaging 21.5 and 11.5, and and you're telling me he can't make an all-star game for the second straight year? That's absolutely ridiculous. Ridiculous. And I also mentioned Trey Young. Uh... He's top 10 in points per game and third in assists. And like I said, the Hawks are basically in the same position as the Magic. I would have picked Trey Young over Nikola Vucevic. And I kind of get it that it's a crowded backcourt in the Eastern Conference. The front court's a little, a little dicey. But I would have gone with Trey Young. I definitely would have gone with Trey Young. I also probably would have gone with Tobias Harris from Philly instead of Ben Simmons. Because some could argue him because he's got his near career high in scoring, just over 20 points a game. But I think for Ben Simmons, he fills out all three of those categories. You know, he's averaging 16 points a game, but he's got more consistent numbers in rebounds and assists in terms of league highs. That would be why I think they picked Ben Simmons over Tobias Harris. And then I would also say Chris Middleton. Now, the scoring for Middleton took a small hit. Because he's taking a step back, but he's passing the ball at a career-high level. And with the Bucks being the third seed right now in that Eastern Conference, you also got a reward winning there as well. And they only get one All-Star, and they're in the starting lineup. You know, there are always going to be those snubs. But out of those lists, Sabonis is the biggest snub for me right now. And in the Western Conference, obviously the reserves much more talked about. The initial selections had Anthony Davis making his eighth All-Star game, even though he's injured. Paul George making his seventh game. Rudy Gobert from the Jazz. Damian Lillard, no surprise there. He should be starting, like I mentioned. Donovan Mitchell gets to go to his second All-Star game. Zion Williamson gets to go to his first game. And obviously the biggest surprise comes out of Phoenix, because Chris Paul gets to go to his 11th, but Devin Booker doesn't. Now, Obviously, it came out probably less than 24 hours ago that Devin Booker will be replacing Anthony Davis, but he should have been named to the team nonetheless. Nonetheless, as Phoenix is having a bounce-back year. They're having a bounce-back year. They're contending for the playoffs again, and Devin Booker is the engine that makes him go. You're telling me Chris Paul? I get he's in the tops in the league in assists, but Booker is averaging almost eight points more than Chris Paul. Eight points more. How the heck was he not chosen over Chris Paul? 
That is insane to me. Now, for the other reserves, Paul George, he's having a great bounce-back year. He really struggled in his first season with the Clippers, but I think this was a great, great decision, and George has really stepped up for the Clippers, gotten them back into the contention rather than people looking at them as an overrated team. I like the selection of Donovan Mitchell. He was very close to making the starting lineup in my eyes, but he's about one or two steps away from being a superstar because he's having a phenomenal season for Utah, but he just hasn't done it in the postseason yet. He did win. I want to say he's won a series or two, the Jazz, but if they can get to the Western Conference Finals with him carrying most of the load, then I would say, yes, he is a superstar. But for right now, I think that's a no-doubter on my all-star team. And Zion Williamson, it was a little bit of a shocker for me. I haven't had to get to see the Pelicans play as much. But then I saw the Pelicans make that huge comeback for the Celtics. And then I started to realize that's why people like this kid. And that's why he's going to his first all-star game. Now, in terms of the snubs, I had mentioned Devin Booker. One of the other big snubs for me was DeMar DeRozan from the Spurs. I mean, look at the Spurs. They're back in the playoff hunt again after missing it last year. He's averaging almost 20 points a game, almost 7 assists and 5 rebounds. But it's so hard to tell just because the mid-pack in that Western Conference changes so often. Like, the the Suns were in, like, 8th place at one point. Now they were up to 4th. So I get all the shifting like that. But the Western Conference was stacked. And really, DeMar DeRozan was definitely the biggest snub outside of Devin Booker. Because Booker obviously made the All-Star team. We knew he was going to make it. But in terms of guys who don't realistically have a chance unless someone gets hurt, DeMar DeRozan would be that first one for me. I would also say De'Aaron Fox is a little bit of a snub. The only thing, he's got great numbers, but the Kings are just well below 500, and they're not having a great year. If the Kings can get a little bit more success, then maybe Fox will have a greater chance at making the team because he's still very, very young. He signed off of his rookie deal to a max extension just this past offseason, so there's still plenty of time for him to make the team. And then obviously we got to talk about Mike Conley. He just doesn't have the all-star numbers this year. And everyone's giving him to the label as the best player to never make an all-star team. And I definitely agree that, you know, there are plenty of other players that are better than him. But I think before his career is up, he's going to have a season where he's going to get into the all-star game. I really do think so because Conley is a very underrated player that a lot of people have overlooked from his time in Memphis. Now he's helping the Utah Jazz to the best record in the West. I think Conley's going to get himself in the All-Star game before all is said and done. Now, in terms of what the rosters are going to look like, the draft will be coming up in the next couple of days because, surprising enough, after next week, when the first half comes to an end, the All-Star game will be on that upcoming Sunday. So it's going to go by very, very quick. And for those of you watching on YouTube, we're actually going to flash a graphic of what I think the rosters are going to look like. And this is great because all I'm going to do is snap my finger and the graphic will come up. Boom, look at that. Look how quick that came up. And it looks a little jumbled, but I'll definitely explain it in length. So Team LeBron's going to get that first pick because he was the leading vote getter. And then Team Durant obviously he's going to have the first pick for the reserves. And I think LeBron's going to throw us a little bit of a curveball and give us Kyrie Irving because we've seen in drafts in the past for these events that they're always going to pick the captains that are. The captains are going to pick their current teammates or former teammates. I think he's going to throw us a curveball. He's going to take Kyrie Irving away from his current teammate, Kevin Durant, and he's going to reunite and get back those Cleveland days from a couple of years ago. And I think Kevin Durant, with his first pick, he'll go with Steph Curry. I think the best years were with Steph Curry. You can tell those guys are tremendous friends. And I think he's going to pull out the best shooter in the starting lineup. And I think he's going to get Curry off the board, which then leads LeBron to getting the Greek freak. I mean, how could you pass on the two-time reigning MVP 
you got to get Giannis. I mean, those two were going at it for the past two years. Now they get to be teammates. That'd be great. And then I think Kevin Durant's going to respond. He's going to get Kawhi Leonard off of that board. Follow that up. LeBron will take Joel Embiid. I know LeBron is a big fan of Embiid. And really for, for James, this is about just taking the opponents away from Durant. And then Durant's going to follow it up with Luka Doncic. I think they're going to enjoy his scoring. And then LeBron between... He's already got a center, so he's got to get that score. He's got to get Bradley Beal, the best scorer in the league right now, which leaves KD with Nikola Jokic. So it's kind of surprising because when you look back at last year's teams with Team LeBron and Team Giannis in that game in Chicago, it was basically the starting lineup was the East versus the West. Now it's pretty much a flip-flop with only the captains being from the opposite conference. Other than that, it's once again East versus West. Now, in terms of the reserves, Kevin Durant obviously gets the first pick, and I think as much as he might want to pick Damian Lillard, he's got to get one of his teammates on his team, so James Harden has to be that first pick for Kevin Durant, which will leave LeBron then to pick up Damian Lillard, I think the best player right now in the NBA. And then Kevin Durant, he sees that, you know what? And he sees, you know what? Let's get two Clipper teammates, and let's get Paul George on that team. So I think that's where he uses his second pick. And then I think LeBron will use his second pick to get one of his favorite players in Ben Simmons. He talks very highly of the Aussie from Philly. So then in pick three, I think Durant, he's going to try and win this game with defense. So I think he's going to get the Stifle Tower, Rudy Gobert which will then lead James to separate the two Jazz teammates and get Donovan Mitchell away from Gobert. And then this is where the curveballs really start to happen, at least for me, which I think will happen. I think Durant's going to get Zion Williamson off the board because when you have guys in their first All-Star game, they're going to be happy to be there. But for for this guy, for Zion, he's going to come out and dominate. He'll want to dominate, play a little bit of bully ball. So I think he's going to take him off the board. And then after that, I think James will he'll get his buddy out of there. He's going to get Chris Paul. He's got to get one of his best friends, his banana boat buddy, on the same team as him. Which then leads Kevin Durant to pick up Devin Booker, one of the best scorers in the league right now. And I think that would be the steal of the draft. And then LeBron, he's going to get another one of his favorite players to watch and play against in Jason Tatum. I think he'll take him. And then, that's going to prompt Kevin Durant to split up the two Celtics and get Jalen Brown on his team. And then the last couple of picks, couple of first-timers, get Zach Levine, the high-flying. He's going to give Team LeBron a lot of energy off that bench. And then Kevin Durant, he's already got the big guy, the big center in Gobert, so he's going to go with the first-time All-Star Julius Randle, which then will leave the final player, Nikola Vucevic, to go to Team LeBron. So that was a lot of explaining, but for those of you watching on YouTube, you can just see it right there. Team LeBron, Team Durant, those are the predictions, I think, for the rosters that will come out for Sunday, March 7th in Atlanta for the 2021 NBA All-Star Game. Stay with the NBA. There have been a lot going on. We just saw the release of the second half of the schedule regarding the NBA season. And a lot of people now are reflecting as the first half is coming to an end on what's been going on recently. Next week, we're going to get into a couple of award predictions to see right now who's the MVP, Rookie of the Year, etc., etc. But... There are four kind of headlines that I kind of have looked at that I really want to get into. And those headlines in the NBA are the subject, once again, of our weekly segment known as Hot Takes. So our first one comes, as we were just briefly talking about LeBron James, 
Talking about his team, the Lakers, obviously they're struggling right now with Anthony Davis. And people are saying that LeBron is playing too many minutes. And the Lakers just are struggling without one of their all-stars, Anthony Davis, as he's going to be out for a month with a calf injury. Now, in terms of buying and selling this kind of headline, I am going to sell it because I think the Lakers are going to be fine. They're going to be absolutely fine because they, the way the league is right now, it's not so much how you get into the playoffs, it's that you get into the playoffs. You know, when you see those top four seeds, it's not insanely important anymore like it used to be, talking about like home court advantage and stuff like that. So the Lakers, they really don't need the number one seed. All they really need to do is get into that top three. You know, there's shuffling right now with the Jazz and the Clippers, but the Lakers just need to get to that top three. Because Davis is important, but they have the depth that you can live in the regular season without him. We're just going to see more minutes and uh, for LeBron James, obviously. And he's smart, too. He knows when to sort of ease off on his energy and then take it to another gear. I think LeBron is smart like that. He's going to be fine. The Lakers are going to be fine. We're just going to see more minutes for Kyle Kuzma, Montrez Harrell, Marcus Saul, And then the offense is going to pick up with... Wesley Matthews, Contavious Caldwell, Pope, Dennis Schroeder, Alice Caruso, if he comes back. I think they have the depth, and they're going to be fine. The Lakers are totally going to be fine. And then when Davis gets back, you just close out the regular season on a high note and get into the playoffs to try and defend your title. But the team that they're trailing in the Western Conference, I had mentioned, were the Utah Jazz. And a lot of teams... And a lot of people are kind of overlooking them. You know, we've heard LeBron James talk about the Warriors to be taken lightly. Uh, We've heard the Nets, the Bucks. I want to buy the headline that the Utah Jazz are at least the best team in the West. I would say they're the best team in the West because they are one of the most well-constructed rosters in the league right now. Let's take away Donovan Mitchell and Rudy Gobert because obviously they're the leading force. You have the rising superstar Mitchell, and then you have the defensive monster in the paint in Rudy Gobert. But then you bring on the veteran presence of Mike Conley for what I would call a little preview for next week, the runner, the front runner for the sixth man of the year award in Jordan Clarkson. But then you have like Bojan Bogdanovic, Derek Favors, Joe Ingles, Royce O'Neal. Quinn Snyder has done a great job in getting out the absolute best from this team because you have that perimeter defense you know Joe Ingles and Derek Favors and even Mitchell right now who's getting into that tier of strong perimeter defense and then obviously the paint is going to be swallowed up by the stifle tower so I really think that the Utah Jazz are the best team in the West and I would say there's about a 60% chance that right now they are the best team in the league I wouldn't completely put them over the 76ers just yet or the Brooklyn Nets any of that but I would definitely say the best team in the Western Conference right now but to me it all gets down to what can they do in the postseason are they going to be able to sustain this kind of success because you you're hoping that they don't peak too early right now because obviously they have the best record in the league but you're hoping that they don't peak and they go into a downward motion and really just kind of waste the number one seed. I don't think that's going to happen. I think they can at least get past the first round, and then future rounds, we'll just have to wait and see for that. But right now, the best team in the Western Conference is the Utah Jazz. And let's let's also not forget, they're top five in offense and defense. The only team to be in that category. Only team. So I am all in on the Jazz. Now, in changing conferences, though, one of the teams that's been sort of surging right now are the Wizards. The Washington Wizards, they've really started to pick it up, and they're finding themselves getting into that playoff hunt. They've still got a little bit of ways to go, but a lot of people are saying that they're on the rise, and some experts are saying that they might make the playoffs, and I, for one, am going to buy that headline because 
The team is finally getting their legs under them. They're finally gelling. Because remember, the Russell Westbrook for John Harden trade happened maybe two or three weeks before the NBA season was even going to begin. So that was a huge curveball thrown into the D.C. area. Huge curveball. And so Bradley Beal, Russell Westbrook, Davis Bertans, that team is still... They're finally starting to get their mojo. They know what their success is. It's Bradley Beal taking the bulk of the offense, getting most of his shots up, and just being an absolute monster. It's Russell Westbrook sort of taking a step back from scoring and being more of a facilitator and a distributor because he's averaging a near triple-double. Averaging a near triple-double despite taking a step back in scoring. I mean, this is a top-10 offense right now. And points per game. My only concern though would be that their defense still needs a little bit of work. And obviously it takes a hit when Thomas Bryant is out for the season. But they are the bottom three in opponents points per game. But with teams like the Wizards and the Brooklyn Nets. If they're going to have any kind of success. They need their defense to be better. Because you can't score 120 points every night and expect to win. Because there are going to be a ton of off nights ton of off nights so if the defense can sort of be sustainable I think the Wizards can really make a run for maybe the seventh or eighth seed if anything in the Eastern Conference and I just briefly touched on the Nets and sticking with the Eastern Conference they have been rolling right now okay they've won seven straight games six of them without arguably their best player in Kevin Durant and some are saying that the Nets right now are the team to beat in the East. And I, for one, am going to sell that because I am the biggest Nets doubter right now because, yes, they are leading the league in scoring, but they are the number 28 defense in opponents' points per game, similar to the Wizards. You don't have any defense, you're not going to win in the playoffs. You can get to the postseason, but you're not going to win with offense. You're going to win with defense, okay, because they are going to crumble. I mean, look at guys like Joel Embiid or Giannis Antetokounmpo. They don't have any defenders that can stay with them. That can stay with them. Your only center is DeAndre Jordan. And while he's good, you need more than that. You can't rely on the small ball. You just can't. Because like I said weeks ago, if they don't make a move where they get a big guy, a big, strong center to defend the paint, behind DeAndre Jordan, then the Nets are not going to go far in the postseason. And not only that, but Durant's missed the last six games. I mean, we don't even know if the big three can still coexist. We've only seen them in about three or four games together. That's all we've seen them in. You know, once Durant gets healthy and we finally get to see Irving, Harden, and Durant all on the floor at the same time, we still don't know if it's going to work. So those are still the biggest question marks for me. I'm selling right now that they're the best team in the East because I think the 76ers are better than them. And Milwaukee, you know, it just takes a little stretch for them to get back into the thick of things. But we're talking the end of the first half. There is still a second half still to be played in the NBA regular season. moving on to a sport that we really don't get to talk about as much but obviously it was making the headlines last weekend with women's tennis just last week at the Australian Open Naomi Osaka winning her fourth major in four years she's won a Grand Slam final at least one in the last four years okay but what's interesting though is that they've all been on hard surfaces so it's only been the U.S. Open and the Australian Open and obviously the big conversation has been after she beat Serena Williams in straight sets in the semis and then going on to the final and beating Jennifer Brady in straight sets and I really wanted to talk about this because just in watching that match and watching the highlights from Osaka against Williams and then against Brady it really felt like, especially in the the matchup with Serena Williams, that it was a passing of the torch. 
It really does because we're kind of seeing a little bit of a Serena, a second Serena in Osaka in the fact that she's dominating. She's got her way on the court. She's got one of the hardest forehands and backhands. It almost feels like there's another Serena era in terms of Osaka. Because interesting fact is that she has never lost when she's made a Grand Slam final. Obviously, she's lost in tournaments, but when she gets to a final, she hasn't lost. Hasn't lost at all. And I'm very hesitant still to put her in that era of sort of the Serena-like. But like I said, she's only won on hard courts. In the U- she's won the U.S. Open twice and, twice and the Australian Open twice. Okay, I think she needs to win Wimbledon, and then she's got to win the French Open. Okay, those are grass surfaces and clay surfaces. If she can pull out a major and she can pull out a win in that tournament then I could definitely secure her spot as maybe the best player in women's tennis today because there's a lot of flip-flopping back and forth. Serena's still in the conversation. You have Simone Halep, obviously, and then Jennifer Brady coming along strong. Sloan Stevens, don't forget her. You know, There's a lot of going back and forth with the rankings right now because she is only number two in the world, but that's just because of the pause and the coronavirus pandemic. So if she can win Wimbledon and she can win the French Open in the next year or two, then you can put her in that spot of the best female tennis player playing today. Now on the other side, though, for Serena Williams, you know, it it was really tough to watch because you almost feel like she's coming towards the end of her career. And obviously so. She's 37 years old. 37. And she's not that powerful force that she once was when she was dominating and it just, it just wasn't the same Serena Williams that we're used to and obviously everyone's going to be rooting for her because she revolutionized the game of tennis revolutionized it when she came onto the scene her and her sister Venus were just absolutely dominant and very rarely were players able to beat her and stop her reign now I still think that she could get one more title to add to her record 23. I think she could get one more before all is said and done, but I would probably give a max of three years, you know, because if she hits 40, I think if if she's not getting out of the quarterfinals or if she's dropping uh, any kind of sets, if she's got to go to fifth set, go to all these tiebreakers and all that, then you might start to really see that sharp decline. So I would give Serena maybe three years max on the tour before she retires, or at least maybe her reign in terms of not success, but like in terms of being dominant. Um, basically for basically for Serena, like a couple more years, and she won't be really on the contender list that we've been known to always put her on ever since she stepped foot onto a tennis surface. And regardless of whenever she goes out. She's going to be going out as one of the best, most dominant athletes of all time, both men and women. Because in my eyes, she is a top 15 athlete for sure, of all time, all time. And, you know, maybe I'd even put her top 10, depending on what happens possibly in her future. Because you have guys like Michael Jordan, Muhammad Ali, LeBron James, all of these All of these players who have been dominant in their league, and when you hear that name, it's synonymous with whatever kind of sport they play, where you have opponents where they see that they got to go against whatever kind of player it is, they start shaking in their boots a little bit or in their sneakers. So that's where I would put Serena, regardless of whatever she's going to do in her future Whenever all is said and done, she'll definitely be a top 15 of all time athlete and maybe a top 10 of all time for Serena Williams. And while we look back on the great career that Serena Williams has had and will continue to have, the future looks bright for the WTA because of the dominance of Naomi Osaka.
Up next, we get to look at all our local teams. It's time for our Let's Get Local segment of the week. And, of course, no one can stop talking about how bad the Celtics have been playing recently. And it almost feels like when you think they're making a swing and a turn and things are going to get better, they just don't because they were up 24 on Sunday against the Pelicans. 24, and they blew it in overtime. Absolutely blew it. I mean, in their last 21 games, it really all started with just that ugly, ugly 30-point loss against the New York Knicks. They've 7-14 and 14 in their last 21 games. 7-14. and 14. Now, I don't want to make any kind of excuses for them, but you have to look at a lot of outside factors that have been harming them. Last night in Atlanta, where they, again, dropped an embarrassing loss. It was the second night of a back-to-back. They didn't have Kemba Walker. They were coming from Dallas. And, of course, they don't have their bulldog, Marcus Smart. Now, regardless of whatever kind of travel or stuff like that that they had to go through, they need to play a full 60 minutes. A full, consistent 60 minutes. Because in watching that game, they just have a ton of spurts where they're just out there, and it looks like they have no idea what they're doing on the court. That's basically what it looks like out there. And the defensive communication is just off. They have a lot of lulls. They have these stretches where they're just on a 12-3 run, or I think the run was like 29-7 in that game in New Orleans. So they just need to have their head down for a full 60 minutes. Because the numbers both on offense and on defense, because their defense is, is good. They're they're seventh in opponents' points per game right now, but they're 20th in points per game. So they still need a little bit of offensive help as well. Defensive communication, just a couple of spurts here and there, but I would say for about 50 of the 60 minutes that they play, the defense is great. In terms of the offense, though, obviously it takes a hit when Kemba Walker is out because he's that great third option that you can use. But then you have guys like Peyton Pritchard. You can't put the offense in his hand when it comes to the second unit. Shemi Ojale, he's more of a catch-and-shooter. He's not going to make plays happen himself. And just they just don't have a ton of offensive weapons coming off the bench. And that's got to be a real target along with size. If they can get size and scoring. like, Like I mentioned last week, Al Horford would fit that perfectly. Would fit it perfectly. For Oklahoma City. And you have a ton of young guys that you can float out there as trade bait. But when we're going into the second half, let's look at things that might help them out here. They played seven back-to-backs in the first half of the schedule. Marcus Smart is going to come back in the second half. Help. And then, of course, that uh, there's been a ton of tough loss games, like the Dallas game where Luka Doncic was doing Luka Magic things. So it wasn't entirely on them. But the second half is definitely going to be easier. It's going to be a little bit easier. Because so far they've played 19 road games and 13 home games. Because in the home games, in the TD Garden, they're 8-5. Eight and 8-5. Eight and five. Eight and five, which is a great record. The other way, they are 7-12. and 12 in the road games. My numbers might be a little bit off in terms of those, but 19 road games, 13 home games. They're going to get a ton of homestands, including a four-game homestand to end the first half. They'll get a seven-game homestand later on in the second half and another four-game homestand near the end of the year. And they also get to play some really struggling teams that they didn't get to see a lot of in the first half because it was a really tough schedule I mean you get to see in the second half Houston a couple times Minnesota Oklahoma City Cleveland all of those teams have struggled you either only saw them once or you didn't see them at all in that first half so that's really going to help the Celtics and they just need to get a couple string of wins maybe four wins in the next five games or so but I think the first half break is also going to help too to just really regather and just figure out what's really at the core 
of what's going on with their struggles. Now, a team that isn't struggling, though, is the Bruins. And what a game they had in Lake Tahoe. I mean, of course, everyone's talking about the game, but how about the attire that the entire team wore? Like, going back to, like, 70s and 80s attire. I mean, that just shows unity on that team. And this shows how good of a team they are, the nucleus that they have. And like I said, they needed a dominant win, and they got it. 7-3 to three against the Philadelphia Flyers. I mean, their first goal came within seconds, seconds of that game against Philly. It was just an unbelievable game to watch, an incredible sight. The NHL probably shouldn't do it again because we are talking Nevada, Las Vegas, in a sunny, dry climate. And you're telling them to play a hockey game with the sun shining in the middle of the day. Probably should think a little bit better about that in the NHL. Okay, Gary Bettman might want to think about that. But going back to the game, they like I said, they needed the win. They got the win. This was probably, I would call, their best game of the year because this was a no-doubter. When they had that, that second period and Pasternak got that hat trick, it was just perfect. Absolutely perfect. And I think after the hat trick that he got, Pasternak, I would call right now a top five player in the entire league and in no particular order I would put Pasternak in there with Connor McDavid Austin Matthews Alex Ovechkin Steven Stamkos that would be where I would come from now the big struggle though that they have is losing Jeremy Lousen all right he's gonna miss a month with a broken hand and it's already tough it's a tough loss because the defense was a little bit thin in terms of depth of depth obviously Matt Grizzlick Kevin Miller and Zaboro are out right now. But we're just seeing how great the other defenders are, like McAvoy and Carlo and Clifton and Kampfer. They're playing great in terms of defense. So really, it's just all about having that depth when it comes to the defense. But the Bruins are playing great. They're going to resume action against the Islanders tonight. And they just are reigning in the Eastern Division right now. Let's just see if they hopefully can continue that in the postseason. Now, a team that needs to return to postseason play are the New England Patriots. And a lot of options have been thrown out about the franchise tag because the deadline opened up earlier this week. It will go until March 9th. And if you ask me, I would say there are only about three or four options that you could use that tag on if you were to choose so. I think it should be used on David Andrews because he's got he was the really only stability right now on that offensive line at the center spot. So unless you know you can bring him back and if he's not going to court any money, any big money from anywhere else, I would get the tag on him. I would also say Jermaine Elumuner, I hope I said that right. Elumuner. Yeah, people will correct me in the comments. Um if you can get him back, he might get a lot of money. He played great this past year for New England. And with all of the shuffling that was going on in that O-line, I'm not saying he had the consistency, but he was definitely the surprise player. The surprise player for New England on that offensive line. Who knew he was going to be able to protect with all the shifting that was going around in that offensive line. So, again, similar to Andrews, if you can get him back, on a fairly nice deal that doesn't give you too much of a hard hit on your cap, then get the tag on him. Another name I was thinking of, J.C. Jackson. Now, I don't know how much money he's going to be able to get, but he's obviously your cornerback of the future, regardless of if Stephon Gilmore is traded before the end of his contract or not if he stays with the team. But J.C. Jackson just had tremendous ball hawking ability in creating all those turnovers and he might get a big ask from another team but if you can bring him back you got to slap the tag on him and then one other option I would say is Adam Butler now he is 27 but he's that that defensive tackle you want you know really for all these guys they're probably the way they play they might get some big offers from a lot of teams. So slapping the tag on there would definitely ensure that. And I know everyone's thinking, what about Joe Tooney? He's the most coveted 
free agent that the Patriots have. Here's the thing, though. He was he was on the tag last year. If you put him on this year, that's eating up over $17.5 million in your cap. So it would just seem like too much and too risky for Tooney. And who even knows if the Patriots are even going to have enough money to re-sign him because they have so many other problems elsewhere. Plus, they have other offensive weapons like L.U. Munor and Isaiah Wynn and Marcus Cannon will come back. So there's still so many questions regarding that. But those are the guys that I would see the Patriots, if they do use the tag, to use the franchise tag on them. Now, a team that also missed the playoffs last year were the Boston Red Sox. And I know a lot of people were saying, well, you didn't include them in your your spring training preview. And I know that. So I'm going to get that in this week before their first game takes place this Sunday against the Minnesota Twins when their spring training will begin. And really, I'm just captivated by what Chime Bloom said a couple of days ago, where they said they have the tools to make a run. Now, I'll agree with the fact that they have the tools, but I don't think you can go World Series for them because they just lost so many pieces. They gave away Ben Attendee. They still haven't re-signed Bradley. We have Chris Sale, who's still recovering from Tommy John, and he's obviously not going to be rushed back. But I think the highest expectations for this team should be the wild card. If they can get them into the wild card, then I would call it a bit of a success because the pitching is going to have the most questions that they have to answer. We obviously know that Eduardo Rodriguez and Nathan Evaldi are going to lead the way. But what about Garrett Richards? What about Martin Perez? What about Nick Pavetta? What are they going to do? And then in the bullpen as well, is Matt Barnes going to have some help from Adam Ottavino and Brazier and Taylor and all of those guys? We don't know that. But I think it's fair to assume the highest expectations for this team is to get into the wild card hunt. And not only that, but the offense as well, you know, obviously you're going to have great seasons from Martinez, Bogarts, Devers, Christian Vasquez might have a great year. But still, I mean, you brought in Marwin Gonzalez. You brought in Kike Hernandez. You still don't know if that's going to be enough in terms of offense. You know, there are a couple game-changing hitters, but do they have the defense as well to make up for a Benintendi or a Bradley or a Mookie Betts even? Because it still feels like the Red Sox are on a hangover from that deal. But I think the good the good thing is that Alex Cora is back in that dugout. Kind of brings back the the old times of that 18, that 2018 championship. So I think that's going to help a lot of guys. And who knows what the Red Sox are going to do. But we'll find out soon enough when they kick off their spring training this Sunday. And now, as always, to finish our show this week, we look at our LOL moment of the week. And we go once again to the diamond on this one, where a recent free agent that I had actually talked about last week as not being signed to a team finally got signed, but had a little trouble picking his jersey number. So this week's LOL moment of the week will go to... Tejon Walker. The newest member of the New York Mets. So let me give you the 411 on his story. Walker signs with the Mets. Okay, he's going to have to change his number. And he's been talking about it. Well, I was 44. Then I was number 99. And I was like, okay, the only number 99 that I couldn't do would be on the New York Yankees. Obviously because of Aaron Judge. So then he's like, oh, I'll just go to double zero then. Because he wasn't able to do 99. But it turns out that he's going to have to go back to 99. And why? Because the number double zero is taken on the New York Mets. Yeah, it's taken by their mascot, Mr. Met. Mr. Met is double zero. And so Tejon Walker was like, you know what? Out of respect for the mascot, 
I'll just go back to number 99. Which begs the question, who the heck, who the heck factors in the mascot to make these kinds of decisions, okay? I can't think of one guy who said, you know, the mascot wears that number, so I'm not going to wear that number. I mean, the only thing I know of is that Cam Newton was number one this year for the Patriots, and Pat the Patriot was still wearing number one. So it's not even going to make a difference. Or the the Spurs Coyote. He's 21. It's really not 21. It's two and then the exclamation point, which is like the logo for the Spurs. But it's still number 21. And who was number 21 for the Spurs? Tim Duncan, one of the greatest NBA players of all time, the future Hall of Famer. And they didn't care about the mascot. They did not. So why would you factor in the mascot's jersey number? You shouldn't. You should just go with what number you want. It doesn't matter if a mascot has it. The mascot isn't on the field. He's not in the scorebook saying like, oh, backflip, two points for the mascot. That's insane. Come on, Tejon Walker. If you want to be number double zero, go ahead. I still am confused as to why pitchers need to have these weird numbers like zero or any kind of single digit number it still doesn't make any sense and it looks kind of weird at least from my vantage point to see a pitcher where anything zero through nine or even double zero like that still just throws me off but I mean number 99 the last number you could pick because of a mascot because of a mascot it's just insane with Tayshaun Walker. I mean, he's probably going to get a lot of love from the Mets because everyone in New York loves Mr. Met. They love that mascot. I'm still, I mean, then again, here in Boston, we have Wally the Green Monster, and he's beloved everywhere. So I could sort of see that. So, I mean, I guess I get it. But, I mean, still, factoring in the jersey numbers seems a little ridiculous for Tayshaun Walker. So, Dude, you could pick any number you want, and you could have just said, you know what, I'll pick 99, and that's it. You don't have to factor in the mascot to say that you picked 99. I picked 99 because their mascot was wearing the number I wanted. You don't have to do that. Absolutely not. Ask Cam Newton. Ask Tim Duncan. Ask all these guys who still had the numbers of their mascots. So... Tejon Walker, you'll learn. But until then, you will be this week's LOL Moment of the Week. So that will do it for this edition of Let Me Speak. Thank you very much for watching and for listening. Make sure you're dropping those likes, those comments, and make sure to follow us on Twitter instagram and facebook just search let me speak podcast and remember as always if you've got a point you got to get across just tell the whole world shut up and let me speak